Today is Wednesday, January 8th. This is our first recording of the year. I'm Kirk Ovec here for Politics NC, downtown Raleigh with Gary Pierce. Gary, how are you doing in this new decade? A new decade. That's great. A happy New Year. The Kirk. Roaring Twenties. We'll have a Roaring Twenties again. We'll have a lot to talk about this year. Yeah, and so I guess we'll start off with some fundraising numbers. So the quarter four for uh, fundraising ended, I guess, New Year's Eve, and all the reports are filed. And typically, if you have good numbers, you put them out quickly, leak them to the press, and they write a nice article about you, which is apparently what Cal Cunningham did because he's running for the U.S. Senate. As a Democrat in this primary, which is not settled yet, there's a few people in it, maybe three, four. I think that said five in the article. I only had known about three. Right? <laughs> Anybody can file to run. Um, but he posted uh, really impressive numbers, more than anybody had raised in a long time, I think. Um, he was above $1 million raised in quarter four. And I think uh, for context, some of the other numbers were, I think Deborah Ross at the same point had raised like 600000 in that quarter. And um, Kay Hagan had done more, but still for uh, an incumbent, not even that much. So those numbers are really impressive for him. And I think he has $1.6 million cash on hand. And obviously he has to win the primary first for all that money to matter. So I imagine he's going to be unloading a lot of that cash, uh, communicating with voters in the primary. And I know he's got an ad up, at least in Charlotte, I imagine elsewhere, uh, right now on TV. So what are your thoughts about how he is going to approach the next few weeks to make sure he captures the nomination? Well, it is a good start. Um, you'd expect it because uh, Cal has a lot of friends and supporters here. He's run before. He was running for lieutenant governor. Right. Um, he's also endorsed by Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, and that's huge. So you, you would expect him to do that, and he is running the ad. As little as I watch television, I've seen his ad two or three times. I've seen it plenty of times on um, on uh, Facebook, sponsored by what, Vets Vote or votes, Vote yeah. for Vets yeah. or something. Vote I, Vets, I think, is like yeah. a liberal-leaning um, veterans. And it's, a, you know, it's exactly the ad you need in a primary. It's, it's his story. It's a bio ad. It's got a picture of him with President Obama. I remember Which him, is yeah. important and establishes some things in his past. So it's a you know, it's the, it's the advantage he had. There was a poll last year that showed um, Erica Smith leading him. Right. But that was when nobody knew anybody and probably a reaction to um, preferring a woman, all else being equal. But it's going to be tough for anybody to match those fundraising numbers, and that's a huge advantage. Money and television still count in politics. And yeah, with those polls that everybody likes to highlight, especially if you're Erica Smith, you love to put out a poll that shows you winning in the primary. I would guess you could put anybody's name in that poll, a male name and a female name, and those results would probably come out about the same because nobody knows either of them, really, except for Erica's got constituents in her Senate district, but Cal hasn't been in office for quite a while. And those both of them are relatively unknown to people unless you're really involved in politics. Everybody is unknown to people in politics. I've done, I've done this all, all my life, do polls for you know, legislators, legislative leaders who think surely everybody in right. the state knows me. And you do a statewide poll and maybe 10 percent know them. And you also hear the thing, well, how can so-and-so run? He or she doesn't have any name recognition. Well, you buy about $2 million on television. That's statewide. why you raise money. All of a sudden you walk in Wendy's and everybody knows who you are. Well, that's and that's part of um, obviously the dynamics are different at, at different levels of campaigns. But especially at this level, um, people raise a lot of money for campaigns. But 
I mean, what do you think they're spending the money on? It's to tell people who they are. Now, obviously, you got staff and things like that, but you're raising money to tell your story, and that seems like that's what Cal Cunningham is doing. So I don't know how much money Erica Smith has raised yet. I saw something saying she was going to put it out next week maybe. Um, I, I can't imagine it's near to that, uh, just given the financial levers that Cal has access to. But I would say... Um, not necessarily in, in Cunningham's defense because it's just a matter of opinion whether you care or not. He did have money coming from other senators' campaign committees. with, Like you said with Chuck Schumer, that DSCC endorsement opens up doors for you to fundraise out of state you wouldn't otherwise get. But just in quarter four, he had more than 7,000 donors from North Carolina, which is an impressive number. 93% of those donors were less than $100, so that's pretty good. Uh, grassroots small dollar fundraising. I know a lot of people are complaining about money in politics, so that's one way to go straight to the people. It is, and he, you know, he's filled up my inbox with uh, emails up to right. the last minute of New Year's Eve. I'm asking for money, but that help that, us meet our goal. That's it. That's a, that is grassroots. That is the way people contribute, and, and I tell you, you know, small dollars like that add up. Look at Bernie Sanders. That's another well, exactly, story. Yeah. Him, um, virtually all his money. I think he has like an average donation of. $18 and something like 5 million donors. And that is the gift that keeps on giving in politics because you keep going back to them. They never max out. And that is an important thing as well. Sustained, like you said, they keep on giving sustained donations. That I know Joe Biden had an issue initially when you launch a campaign, you can max out on everybody, but those aren't recurring dollars. So you can only get so much out of millionaires and billionaires. There's only so many wine caves you can go to. Exactly. To money. But, and that's a point I was about to make too. That matters optically because I think initially with the DSCC involvement, it was easy for opponents, you know, particularly Erica Smith, to sort of say, well, look at Cal Cunningham. He's the poster boy of money and politics. He's getting all these big dollar donations when, you know, in reality, he's posting these pretty low dollar amounts. And at the end of quarter four for Mayor Pete's campaign, they had this, uh, this little contest to see who could get the least amount of a donation. So it basically starts at one cent and it keeps going up. <laughs> who who can give the smallest amount of money? That's a unique <laughs> amount, right? And that was a contest they did, and it lowered the amount. I mean, between Q4 and Q3, his his average donor went down a significant amount. Nothing to write home about, really, but it went down, and that matters because people write stories about it, and it it makes a difference in the primary if it looks like you're getting your money from rich people or everyday people. Or if you're just like Bloomberg and Tom Steyer, you're just writing checks. And well, it's really, every dynamic unlimited. is at play in 2020. It's every possible type of campaign you might try to run. And maybe it's a good ca uh, test case, but... Um, well, it's, you know, it makes the point. We, we end up talking mainly about money. Right. Um, that's how important money is in politics. There are a lot of ways to get there. And who's to say one is better than the other? I mean, you know, it's great to have a lot of small donors like Sanders does. Some people say, well, Bloomberg is great because nobody can buy him. <laughs> He's obviously not owned by anybody. He may own all of us before it's over. Yeah. And he can sure pay for a, a lot of things. He can pay for organizers at $6,000 a month. Uh, we heard that he had like 800 people hired across the country, and he's sure running a lot of television. Yeah, I know a few weeks ago he opened up in Charlotte, and he has a place in Raleigh that just opened, I think, last Friday. So uh, money, 
money can do a lot. I think Thomas says money isn't everything in politics, but everything in politics costs money. And and the, the reason money is important is my old friend Carter Wren always said, what money enables you to do is get information to voters. Right. And that's ultimately what elections are about. What do voters know about you or they know about your opponent and the difference? And that's what democracy and politics is supposed to be about. Yeah, and, and it does matter because I know there are plenty of examples, particularly at, like, I'm thinking of some city council races in years past before I even lived in Raleigh, but you have people who were in office and didn't spend money, sat on money, and at the end of the day, you lose because somebody else was communicating with voters and you weren't. And that, that can happen to anybody. You get comfortable, but... Well, you know, I've got a, a friend who worked for uh, John Delaney. Yeah. who was in the presidential campaign, who has just sort of gone nowhere. And I think the reason he went nowhere is that even though he's a guy who's worth maybe a couple hundred million dollars, he didn't spend it. Um, you know, maybe he thinks he's making a point or something. But, you know, if, if you don't raise and spend money, people don't know about you, and it's hard to get anywhere. Yeah, exactly. Well, moving to another way people get into the minds of voters and particularly the inboxes of voters are junior Senator Tom Tillis recently, who would face off against the eventual winner in the democratic primary. So just as some backstory that I think everybody would know who's listening to this, Tom Tillis spent a year sort of flipping around, figuring out who Tom Tillis is. It's kind of like a gap year, I guess, for him between <laughs> high school and college, you find out who you really are. And uh, it looks like he's come down on the side of being a big proponent of President Trump. And there was a bit of, I won't say controversy, because it really was one of those things that just happened online and that most people don't really care about. But the Charlotte Observer wrote an editorial about it, so they felt like it was worth addressing. And Tom Tillis's Twitter account, which I imagine he has never even seen, people run it for him, but there, were, uh, there was a tweet saying, sign here to tell Eric Trump happy birthday. And it was... I didn't click on it, but I imagine what it looked like. It took you to a landing page, and there was a place where there was a nice picture of Eric Trump and maybe Tom Tillis is photoshopped in there somewhere, and you sign here, and you give your name and your number, and then in a few minutes you'll get an email from Tom Tillis asking to give money to his campaign. So that's how it works. You capture emails with some contrived sort of – basically you're trying to get people to click on a link, and this is what Tom Tillis's team thought would get Republicans to click on the link. So – Apart from just the tactics of a fundraising operation there, what does that say about the Republican Party, that that's how you try to get them onto your page? Well, first, I'm glad you explained to me why they did it, because that didn't occur to me. When I saw it, I thought, how demeaning could this possibly be I just wanted to tell the guy for a United birthday. States senator? So I'm glad you, I understand now there was some campaign reason for doing it, but still I come back. How demeaning. Right. I mean, and, and I guess what it shows is this really is Donald Trump's party. And it wasn't at this point four years ago. I mean, Trump, as I recall, was probably somewhere in the 30 percent. He may have been leading in the polls, but every other candidate, Cruz, Lindsey Graham, go through them all, was talking about what a terrible person he was, right. how terrible it would be for the Republican Party to nominate him. You can say that until you realize that's what the people in the party want. And, all of us, and what they realized is that Trump had a better fix on what the Republican Party really is than any of them did. And so, you know, he owns it now. 
Um, you got somebody like Tillis, who I th my sense of Tillis has always been that he's a pretty smart and principled person, even if I don't agree with him. But this is what he's had to do to be a Republican candidate in in Trump's in Trump's presidency. So I guess the real question is, what's going to happen to him when Trump loses, whether it's this year or four years? Is the Republican Party going to revert to what the Tom Tillis has thought it was, or is it going to be something else? Well, that that is also a question, something I was thinking through the other day. Um, I was listening to some older episode, I think, of Howard Stern shows, which is probably not the best show to listen to, but, you know, he's a popular guy. And anyways, he, Donald Trump used to go on that show all the time, which is a, maybe an indicative of his former character or lack thereof. More of the topics they discussed are in question, but the whole thing that Stern felt having known him for a while was that the, the presidential campaign was a publicity stunt, which I think a lot of people thought that it's like, here's a great way to get my name in the newspaper a lot. And then election nights, you wake up and you're president of the United States and maybe you didn't mean to. But <laughs> if you if you if you take that line of thought, which I think is probably fair that he was doing it to raise his his image ultimately to make money off of something else, then you'd have to chalk it up to a success because he's the most well-known person in the world. And now he's got this dynasty. Even if it's not realized, you've got these Trump children who poll high if you're going to run for president, you know. Uh, Donald Jr. and Ivanka both would win a Republican presidential primary mm -hmm. if you believe the polling now. No reason not to think so, because like you say, that's their party. So even if they don't want to run for politics again, he could start his own version of Fox News or his own news website. I mean, if you're just looking for ways to make money, becoming president is is a good one. I mean, four years of him not enjoying his life very much, but I think at the he likes conflict too. So, I mean, it's the biggest bully pulpit in the world. I, I just think if you look at it, not from him wanting to be president for the typical reasons, if you look at it just through the lens of how can I make money doing this, I think it might be a success for him and his family. Well, I, I, I have a hard time believing that, that somebody would run for president and not want to actually be president or think they'd be a better president than anybody else. And he certainly has the ego to do that. I think the thing that really distinguishes Trump a lot of people in politics spend time thinking about policies or political tactics or whatever it is. Trump has spent his entire life studying one thing, which is how to build a brand and, and how to make it appealing to people. And you got to hand it to him. He is good at it. He's probably the best person in America at that. I mean, you can argue about whether it's true, whether it's authentic. But he is good at doing it, and it got him where he is, and it got him in control of the Republican Party, and it got him where a lot of people never thought he'd be, which is at the beginning of 2020. But yeah, he's been impeached, and uh, who knows what happens now with Iran, but he has at least a legitimate shot, possible shot, at being a two-term president. Yeah, exactly. I think that's there's a lot of, just to wrap up, there's a lot of, you know, narratives of the day with politics. We had a point where everybody thought Biden was going to fall apart, but he stayed consistent. And then Elizabeth Warren really had a surge like Halloween to Christmas. And then she's kind of fallen off. And then now it's everybody's taking another look at realize, wait, Bernie 
is first and second in all these polls, and he could really win it. Um, the other one to keep top of mind is just Trump is obviously able to win office again because he won office first time. You know, lightning can strike twice in presidential elections, and it would be a lot of work for him to to win a second term. But I think he's probably the odds-on favorite at this point, just being the incumbent, unless something crazy really happens, and that's more of like a market issue or a military issue because there's nothing he as an individual can say or do, I think, that's going to dissuade people from voting for him. Well, I think, you know, just as he has sort of united the Republican Party and cowed all of his, everybody in the party uh, to go along the line with him, he's had sort of a, a negative gravity effect on the um, Democratic Party. And, you know, I think the main thing for Democrats this year less about ideology or identity or gender or anything like that. We want somebody to beat Trump. That's the one thing we want. And I think that's the effect of Iraq, too. It just makes them think more. And I suspect in the end they'll say, well, let's don't take a risk. Let's, let's do what um, we know will win. Now, Sanders and Warren are basically arguing, no, you have to take a risk. The only way to win is to mobilize a lot of new voters. Yeah, well, it could come down to negative partisanship like in 16. People didn't love Trump, but they hated Hillary Clinton, and that was enough for them to make a decision. So I guess we'll leave it there and see where we fall next week. Good enough. Good enough.